If you have a Bible with you, please open it to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 in the black ESV Bibles in the seats in front of you on page 990. While you're opening there, I would ask that perhaps it might be helpful if you also look back into the book of Matthew and, and have a, a finger sort of stuck in Matthew chapter 6 as we will be spending some time there this morning as well. Two scholars named Willeman and Hauerwas said this, There may be religions that come to you through quiet walks in the woods or by sitting quietly in the library with a book or rummaging around the recesses of your psyche. Christianity is not one of them. Christianity is inherently communal, a matter of life in the body, the church. Jesus did not call isolated individuals to follow him. He called a group of disciples. This is indeed true and is worth noting again and again. We have not been called to Christ as individuals, but we have been called to Christ as individuals to fit into a larger body that is the church. And much of what happens in the West today, and much of the error of the church in the West and the difficulty that the church has in the West is the sort of rampant individualism that goes through the church and frankly is found everywhere in the West. This emphasis can come out in many places as how it works through our people in the church, whether it's this church or any other church. The way our church services are run, how people are used and how people want to be used within the church, how sermons are presented and promoted. But perhaps the most important way this works out in our lives is the way we pray. How communal are your prayers? How often do you pray for others in the church? How often do you pray for their good, for their protection, for God to work in them? Obviously, the most important question to ask is, do you pray? But second to that is, how much do you pray with the word our, or us, or we? Are your prayers given up only to your own concerns? Do you pray, help me, Father, with this, give me, Father, that, let me know, let me see, let me be empowered in this area or in that area? Now, we want to make sure that we're clear that it's not that asking things from God is wrong. Indeed, it is a mark of great humility and what we need to be the kind of people who are willing to pray humbly for these things. And your father is not unwilling to give those things to you. It is good to pray to God for the things that you need. However, it is not that asking for these things are wrong. It is the fact that we don't ask them for one another enough. We have a treasure in the life of Jesus that it is not told to us in just one way as though only one perspective was to gain hold, but rather we have a fourfold gospel and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each take different sort of perspectives on the life of Jesus. A man that cannot be described in full is nevertheless therein described in truth. And within that first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, we have what many people and I think are rightly said to believe is the greatest sermon ever, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sort of lays out what it is for humans to flourish in the world under the reign of Jesus Christ and even as sojourners in a world that is filled with sin. It goes against much of the grain of human thought and will, even as our Pastor Richard has prayed this morning. Especially important for us today is the beginning of chapter 6, where Matthew has Jesus focusing on prayer. Many of you know this particular piece of, ser- uh, of, of the sermon and of scripture very well, and many of you have it memorized. Now, some of you have it memorized differently than others, depending on whether you say debts or you know, trespasses, and whether you include the end of that to be that your kingdom and power and might forever and ever and ever, which while certainly true is not found probably in the book of Matthew. But that passage of scripture was not meant strictly to be memorized, and the Lord's Prayer is not strictly meant to be something that we pray. It's perfectly fine, and I will be the last person to tell you not to memorize scripture. For those of you who have it memorized, it is good to have it memorized. But you shouldn't think that in quoting that, that this is all that Jesus wanted us to pray. But this ought to be a model prayer for us, demonstrating how we ought to pray. And there Jesus teaches us how we ought to pray by saying these things. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Generally, we can break down this sort of prayer into three different sections. Our prayer for God's glory, our prayer for God's provision, and our prayer for God's protection. Just briefly, even as we look in the book of Matthew, I want to walk through those things. As we look at Matthew 6, and we think through what it means to pray for God's glory, there are three distinct things that come up in this. We pray for his name to be honored as holy. That's what hallowed means. We don't use hallowed anywhere else. I wish translations would stop doing that, but they all do it because everyone memorized this in the King James Version, which they use the word hallowed for, but we don't use it anymore, so stop saying it. If you can get out of the habit of doing it, you'd be better. It simply means your name be seen and known as holy. That is, when people think of the name of God, what they ought to think of is someone who is greater and grander than anything else, who is distinct from all of creation. There is none like him. He is holy, holy, holy. What's more, that his kingdom come and his will be done on earth and is, as it is in heaven, all of these kind of signify one thing, that God be recognized as God everywhere that the very nature of God and the very manifestation of God's glory in this world might be as clear, known to us and known to all the world as it is in heaven, that his rule and his reign be known and felt, that as God manifests his glory to the world, that that glory would be recognized and seen for what it is. That is the first thing we pray. Secondly, as we pray for provision, Jesus tells us we pray for our daily bread, the very sustenance that keeps us alive. We ought to be clear This portion of the prayer is not truly just about bread, although my son wishes it were. It's not just about bread. It is more about the very nature of the outlook that we have on life. There is nothing 
that screams to us of our humility more than the need to pray for the very things that come to us so naturally daily. And this is a super important reminder to people in the West because we can find bread and food almost anywhere. Especially to people who are sitting here fairly wealthy and well-to-do. Food is not the problem. Oftentimes, too much food is the problem. But Jesus is reminding us that even the very basic things of our life, even the things that are are somehow the most natural things to come by and the most important things to come by, we need to pray that God gives us those things. Oftentimes when people don't pray, there's two basic reasons why. Either they are too proud to ask God for things or they think God too little to give them those things. The prayer for provision is a prayer of humility that God would give us the very things that we need for life and that he would provide for us forgiveness. The word debt here is not a horribly useful word for us. It's not as though we're asking that God forgives our college debt. I'm lingering around some of that. God, would you take it away? Maybe cancel my mortgage while you're at it. That would be splendid. We've got a, we've got a loan out on this building. Let's, let's get rid of it. God, if you would take care of that, that would be awesome. But that's not what it means. It is not a debt that's accrued financially. It's a debt that's accrued in honor. That you have done something evil, you've done something wicked, or you've done something wrong to somebody and you have robbed them of the honor and the the glory that they are due and so you owe them a debt to repay that honor. God is infinite in honor and glory and so to have robbed him of that places us in the greatest debt you can imagine. It has a lot to do with forgiveness of sins. The point, as the small passage at the end of the sermon makes out, is that we are to be forgiven if we are the kind of people who forgive, which seems weird and seems backwards. It seems like the free grace that is given to us ought to mean that we are forgiven solely by God regardless of what we do, and that even if we don't forgive, God would still forgive us. But what Jesus is pressing you for is for you to live a consistent life. That if you are the type of person who has been forgiven, then you ought to be the type of person who forgives. To make this very clear and to emphasize it, he turns it around. Father, forgive us as we have forgiven. Do we expect that if we are harsh and judgmental, if we expect everyone to pay everything that is due to us to the last cent, that God would then forgive us for the great debt that we have before him? Jesus wants us to be consistent. James 1 says it the same, to the same point. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If you are unstable in your ways, not believing and then doubting, but also not simply being consistent in the life you live, the question that Jesus and James would put forward to you is, what do you expect to get from God? There's a drive for consistency and for provision in this. Lastly, there is a 
plea for protection, protection from ourselves. In the Lord's Prayer, he says, Father, do not lead us into temptation, which people have rightly understood as very odd because in the same James that we just read from, James, just a little bit later, says this, no one should say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So are we praying that God doesn't tempt us that we know cannot happen? Well, no. I think the point of this is don't lead us to be tested in such a way that that test will be overbearing for us. Jesus already in the Sermon on the Mount has talked about persecutions and meekness and the difficulties that people of, that, that follow him will have in the world. He says, on, on account of my name, you will be hated. You will be persecuted. He has made no qualms about the fact that while we live in this world, the going will at times be rough and difficult. And the prayer to not be led into temptation is a prayer that those difficulties and those trials that come upon us would not so overwhelm us that we would then put God to the test, that we would tempt him or test him. The Israelites found this out in the desert. Psalm 106, in the beginning of Psalm 106, talks about them testing the Lord at Meribah in the wilderness. This comes from Exodus 17, 7. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is almost immediately after they've come through the Red Sea. They get on the other side. They're in the wilderness. They don't think that God is going to provide for them. They don't think that God will give them the provision that he knows they need and they say, is God with us or not? Satan worked in the same way to Jesus, taking him up on the temple mount and saying, throw yourself down. Psalm 91 declares that your foot will not even strike a stone. And Jesus says, no, you're not to test the Lord your God. Those Those aren't promises to be tested. Those are promises to be trusted. And there is a grave difference between them. So we are protected, therefore, from ourselves by this prayer. And we are protected from the evil one, from the devil from Satan. The ESV literally just says, and deliver us from evil, but the Holman and the NIV get this right. It should be the evil one. We are asking for protection from Satan himself. He desires our end and our destruction to place in our path many things that would cause us to stumble and fall. And so in humility, because we know that Satan is greater and grander than us, he is stronger than us, and he could crush us. We're not the right man, as Luther would say on our side. We pray that God would deliver us from him. And all of this, all of this prayer is given communally. We pray to God our Father. We pray for our bread, forgiveness of our sins, for our deliverance. Now, I realize that given that introduction, you are now concerned about the length of the actual sermon. You need to pray, brothers and sisters. Perseverance, deliverance, give it to me. What I would like to do is show you how to use that model prayer in a context. Because I think that Paul does precisely that. As a matter of fact, I would go so far in my own personal beliefs to think that these five verses are formed and kind of put together 
in Paul's mind off of what he has heard spoken of Jesus saying this very model prayer to his other disciples. Now, Paul didn't have Matthew and he didn't have Luke 11. So these things would have come to Paul and this model prayer would have been given to him. But what you're going to find is that these verses sound an awful lot like the Lord's Prayer. So as we turn to Paul, whether or not Paul had this place before him, whether or not this is actually based off of it doesn't really matter. I think that this is a good example of how to use the model of that prayer to pray communally for others, to have them pray for you and what it means to pray for the glory of God, to pray for the protection of God and to pray for the provision of God. So let's turn to Paul. Read these five verses at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians 3 and walk ever so briefly through them. In 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul writes this, Finally, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is the word of our God. First, as we come to this section of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, let us see the petition for glory. The petition for glory. The ESV translates this word glorified as honored. It's perfectly fine to do that. I prefer the word glory here, but the question becomes, how is this glorification, how is this honoring of the word of God meant to happen? How is the speeding ahead, the running of the word of God to be obtained? Paul places it squarely under prayer for him and for Silas and for Timothy. Notice what he says, pray for us that the word of God might speed ahead. Pray for us that the word of God might be glorified. This is how the word of God is ultimately glorified and honored. It is through the normal speech of normal men. So we talked about last week, but it's worth hitting again. That God will produce supernatural ends through normal everyday means. Those normal everyday means are you and me. They are not super Christians filled with a spirit and all kinds of talk. They are not this sort of miracle-working Christian. God could have done all of that had he wanted to, but rather what he has done is called for us to, in the plain speech that we have and this plain teaching that we have, to call forward the gospel of God and to call sinners to repentance. That is how the gospel will speed ahead and be honored. God could have used anything that he wanted to. He could have mysteriously brought the gospel to rest on people's hearts without any human intervention, but he did not choose to do that. He could have caused it to be written in the stars to be discovered by scientists, but he did not do that. He could send his angels to people in every country and proclaim with voices louder than we could possibly imagine the glory of Jesus Christ and the goodness of the gospel, but he didn't do that. Even in the startling book of Acts, where so much is miraculous and we might with some caution say mm, irregular. God 
doesn't use miracles to bring about faith. He always uses the preached word of God. He could have, through any amount of irregularity, had the Ethiopian eunuch come to knowledge of Jesus Christ and what has happened. But instead, he miraculously picks up Philip, sends him to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then has Philip open his mouth and tell him. Cornelius has a vision of God. That vision is to call for Peter so that Peter would come over and tell him the gospel. Even in the book of Acts, even when miracles are happening, those miracles are leading to the plain and clear preaching of the gospel. This is why Paul has them pray for him. Don't just pray for the gospel, pray for the people who take the gospel because you cannot dislodge the going of the gospel from the going of the people. It always works like that. The ordinary means of ordinary people saying ordinary words that achieves God's extraordinary ends. One day, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century English preacher, was supposed to be preaching in some sort of country church. I don't know exactly where it was, but his train got delayed, and because he didn't go about the problem of inventing the cell phone, he couldn't tell them that he was going to be delayed. His grandfather was at that church, and as the time went on and they were waiting for for Chuck to show up, he decided that he was going to get up and he was going to start preaching. And so he had started the sermon for Charles. I don't know what this actually looked like, but nevertheless, they were waiting around, and so he thought that he would preach for him. Maybe not for him, but in his stead until he arrived. Charles showed up. Now at this time, Charles had already been known as a grand preacher. Uh, He was already famous, certainly across England, probably across much of Europe, and certainly in the English-speaking parts of the world for his sermons. Even his grandfather knew that. But his grandfather warned the people as soon as Charles showed up to not think more highly of Charles than they ought to. He said very clearly, he, meaning Charles, may preach the gospel better than I do, but no man preaches a better gospel. So many of us are entranced by the person who brings the gospel. So many are just pulled in by the man or the woman in the pulpit. We, we, we love the personality. But Paul's petition is not that he be thought of as good, but that the word of God be honored and glorified. And as much as you can't separate the going of the word from the going of the people, you have to separate the glory of the word from the glory of the means by which it's provided. So Paul prays that the word of God speeds ahead. He asks that the word might go forward. Speed ahead means nothing more than run, that it, that it spreads it, its, its legs out, it stretches its legs, and it goes on a run. The idea here is that the word of God is meant to go throughout the world, and to do that, it needs to get up and go. This is the word of the Lord, which is nothing less than the gospel. We might think of this rather than the word of God or the word of the Lord, 
probably better to think about as the word about the Lord, the word of Jesus. It is the word that tells us what Jesus has done, what he has come to do for us, that he has come to this earth as very God of very God, incarnating himself in human flesh, dying for us and our sins, raised for us and our justification so that we can trust in him and we can have our sins forgiven. Even as we have already spoken of this morning, your sins are forgiven because Jesus died on a cross. Your life is given to you because he was raised from the dead. And that by trusting in that, by placing all of your eggs in that basket, you too can be saved and spared from the wrath that is surely to come. That is the word of the Lord. That is the word about what Jesus has done for you and about what he has done for me. And thirdly, under this is a request for the consistency of God's people. Paul knows that this glory will go out. He wants that glory to go out, but he knows that there might be hesitancy, and so he's saying to them, this happened among you, not only to remind them that this can indeed happen, but to remind them that they have experienced it, so they ought to want it to be experienced by others. If it was good for you, if it was good that the gospel came to you, if it was good that others labored in the gospel for your sake, then you should want to labor so that others can hear that good news themselves. And therefore, I think Paul is calling them, as Jesus calls us in the model prayer, to be consistent. If we have enjoyed the fruits of others' labors so that we could hear the gospel, others should enjoy the fruit of our labors so that they can hear the gospel. Paul understood this well. In the beginning of the book of Romans, he writes, I am under obligation to both Greeks and barbarians, to both the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. He's not under obligation to them. He's not under debt to them because he owes it to God. He's under debt to them. The word of God is so good. It's so filled with salvation and and light and truth. He says, I need to let it be known to them. The surpassing goodness of the news, the quality of the spiritual gifts, the encouragement that he gets from seeing it all accomplished. Paul looks at the Thessalonians and says, this has happened among you, so let it happen elsewhere. Friends, we all the same should pray that the word of God would be heard and honored all over the world. This is our petition for glory. Secondly, we pray for the protection of God. The second thing that Paul wants the Thessalonians to pray for is their protection. That is their Paul, Silas, Timothy, all of the missionaries of the world. Paul knows, and he knows better than almost anyone else, that there are many out there who are unfaithful to the gospel. As he says, there are many who do not have faith, for not all have faith. These are wicked and evil men. They would gladly keep the preaching of the gospel from happening even if that means keeping the preachers of the gospel from happening. They would seek to destroy and undo the work that God has done if they could. And it should be known that these are not just people with some character flaws. These are people who act in evil and wicked ways. Paul has run into these people before and will do so again. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says this, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself, 
In, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul has run into these kinds of people so that he feared even for his life, and yet he said, our hope was still in God. God can raise the dead, bring us to the point of death. God can take us back from that because he can do what's even greater than that and bring us up from the grave. Even the way that Paul was introduced to the Thessalonians was after being wrongly arrested in Philippi, kicked out of the city, told not to come back, go to Thessalonia, and being there, preaching the word of God for three solid weeks before they gave him the boot as well, and he had to flee for his life. Paul knows that there are wicked and evil people who will keep the word of God from going forward, including keeping the man of God from doing what he ought to do. And we ought to be under no delusion that such people exist in the world. They will obstruct the preaching of the gospel wherever they can, whether that's keeping it from being heard in their household or keeping it from being heard in their country. It doesn't matter. They will do all they can, not just to stop the preaching of the word, but to stop the preacher of the word. So we must pray. We must pray in humility for ourselves and for one another that God might deliver us from such circumstances and that no such people would stand in the way of the gospel going forward. So we also pray for those who are on the front lines. There are so many missionaries who are in places where it is not just illegal to preach the gospel to people, but that personally, they put themselves in the line of fire daily by doing so. And for those who might receive the gospel, put themselves at peril of losing their families and their lives if they accept it. The gospel is opposed to in many places. Preaching is difficult and fraught with great personal danger. So let us partner with people in such places through our prayers. Let's pray for the protection of God over them. But then Paul, in turn, prays for the Thessalonians' protection as well. Again, what is good for the goose is good for the gander. And so Paul who knows the need for the security and God's protection from evil men, says, I will also pray for God's security over you from the evil one. This is the exact same phrase that's used in the Lord's Prayer, the evil one. Which, by the way, the ESV translates as the evil one here. Those who oppose the word of the Lord, those who oppose the word going out are to be seen, I think, in the same light as the evil one here. I think such things are satanic. And I don't use that word lightly. The problem is when we think of satanic, we think of, I don't know, dark underground spaces with upside-down pentagons and, and badly lit with candles and dark everywhere, dark makeup on the people who are doing it, and cats everywhere. Lots of cats. Never known a Satanist who owned a dog. Let that be of note for you. But that's not the face of the work of Satan in the world. That might be an aspect of it, but it's not the face of it. 
Anytime you oppose the work of God going forward, anytime you oppose the gospel going forward, it is a work of Satan. The two places where Jesus makes this most clear in the gospels are two people who with all of their lives and all of their hearts would disavow Satan with all of their energy. I can say unambiguously that in these two portions of scripture that we're about to look at, when Jesus tells people that they are acting like Satan or satanically, he tells it to people who are absolutely floored by that. He's not telling it to people who are like, man, he saw in the back room where I've got all my cats. Like, they, they don't love Satan. They would say that they are God-fearing in all their ways, and yet Jesus calls them out as sons of the devil. First, to Jews in general, in John 8, Jesus says to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He looks at all these Jews and he says, you don't have God as your father as much as you want to claim you do. You're acting like Satan. You're standing in the way of me who has been sent by God for salvation. You're standing in my way and therefore you are nothing like Abraham, your father. You are like Satan. But probably more to home is Matthew 16 where we read this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Man, the guts on Peter. If that boldness can only be filtered in a specific way, it would be really useful. He began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Stunningly, Jesus turns and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Peter, trying to be a faithful friend, Peter, trying to be certainly all the positive things that you would want to say about somebody who desires this. And Jesus realizes the moment that it comes out of Peter's mouth, that even if Peter has all the right intentions, it's all for naught because what he is doing is satanic. It is standing in the way of Jesus going to the end and the goal for which he has been sent, to be rejected, to be crucified, to die, and to be raised again. Friends, standing in the path of the gospel going forward is nothing less than satanic. So we pray for protection from evil and wicked men. We pray for protection from Satan. And in the middle of all of these protections, standing over it, is a reminder of why everything will be okay. Paul says, the Lord is faithful. Men might be unfaithful. Satan might want to end you. But the Lord is faithful. He will protect and establish you. Jesus is good to his word. He's good to his word both and that he has promised life and presence to you and he will fulfill those things. 
but he's also good to his word going forward. He is also good to make sure that his word continues and persists to run through the world. You may suffer ridicule, you may suffer hardships, you may find the going difficult, but you will never find Jesus being unfaithful to you. He is more faithful than the rising sun, he is more faithful than the coming tide, he is certainly more faithful than the coming winter, He will protect his people. He will protect his word. So let us pray with assurance, full conviction that God will give us the protection that we seek. We have heard of the petition for glory and the protection of God. And thirdly, let us see the provision of the good. The provision of the good. Paul was confident that the Thessalonians would indeed do the good things that he demanded and that they would do them in the future. It's interesting because the very next verses that we're going to read, we're going to finish this book next week, are going to be verses that seem tied directly to 1 Thessalonians where Paul has told them to do something and they didn't do it, or at least they didn't do it well enough, so Paul's going to readdress the thing again. But nevertheless, even though he says that, you can tell already, even though they've already failed to do what he's told them once, he has all the confidence in the world that what he says will actually be done among them. He says that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Paul was confident like this in most of his churches. In Philippians 1.6, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, Our Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even in Corinth, he says this. Now, if you have never read the Corinthian correspondence, go and read 1 Corinthians. Get to that verse where he says, I am sure that the Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then listen to all of the trash that's going on there in Corinth. That place was a hot mess. They were all over the place. Whether it was dealing with lawsuits amongst their believers, whether it was dealing with sexual immorality, whether it was dealing with factions, whether it was dealing with pride, whether it was dealing with the way in which they got drunk and they defiled the Lord's Supper with one another, whether it was a a blatant misunderstanding of what it meant to have spiritual gifts, they are all over the board everywhere. To when you hear people say, well, we want to build a New Testament church, you're like, well, maybe not so much. Because that New Testament church was not great. And Paul looks at them and says, I have every confidence that the Lord will work it out. Then you read the letter again and you're like, but you won't say it again. And he turns around and he says it again. Even in Corinth, Paul is assured. Why is Paul so confident? Corinthians doubt his apostleship. They doubt his calling. They doubt his authority. They seem to be entranced and love the power of the world? Why is Paul confident in them? Well, because Paul's not confident in them. Paul's confident in the Lord. Here, he's very clear. Not we have confidence in you, Thessalonians, that you will do the things that we command because you're good people, you're honest people, you're not like the people elsewhere who are just messed up and horrible, but you are good people, so you will. No, he says, we have confidence in the Lord that you will do this. Just as we pray for daily bread, 
We pray that we might be nourished in our body by the food that Christ gives to us. We also ask Jesus that we might be nourished in his word because the confidence that we have in each one of you, the confidence that I have that no matter where you are, where you're coming from, that the word of the Lord will do its work in you so long as you rightly confess Jesus Christ and that is true and from the heart, we have every confidence that the Lord will finish this work in you because the word of the Lord does its work because he provides us with daily bread not just the food that we need for our bodies, but the word we need for our souls. The very word of God that has come to us. So have confidence in the Lord. Many of you might be frustrated when you look around and see others, thinking, I don't know what's taken them so long to get on the train here. I don't know why they're so slow to pick up the things of the Lord. I don't know why they're lagging behind in their devotion to our Lord. They should be further along in the Christian walk than they are. But have confidence in the Lord. Can you, by your anger or frustration, or even your haughtiness in thinking that they should catch up to you or something like that, get other people to grow and mature? Can you simply prod and push people into deeper spirituality and biblical fidelity? No. We must wait upon the Lord. We can't do it. No amount of flattering speech, no amount of oppressing, no amount of dress, dressing them down, no amount of, of any of these sort of rhetorical devices, no matter how sincere they might be, will ever get people to move along. We must simply do the work of God, proclaiming the word to them, opening the word to them, praying for them, asking for God to work in their lives because that is the only way they will move forward because our confidence cannot possibly be in their ability to understand or to reason or to think through what they need to do. Our confidence must be in the Lord working in them. And our frustration and our anger that they're not coming along will not help them. Oftentimes what that shows is that we are not as far along as we ought to be. Friends, many of you might have been flash fried by God and ready to go right now. But other people are being slow cooked. You don't have to have too much barbecue before you realize how good tough pieces of meat can come out when you slow cook them. This works in our own lives as well. Friend, you're going to fail. And there are probably areas of your life where you fail and you fail and you fail and you fail. But the Lord is faithful in all things. Have confidence through faith and repentance that God will work in you. And he does this through a simple process. Paul says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. Reminding you that even in your failures, God loves you. That he has loved you in Christ. That his love is always upon you because his love has already been achieved for you. So friend, fail, sin, fall, repent, repent, repent. A thousand times. God's love is not going to be worn out by you. God's love is not going to be reduced by how many times you slip up and fall. God's love is not reduced for you simply because you made a couple of errors. You know what? 
God knew that before the foundation of the world. He knew all of your problems. He knows things that you've done that you haven't done yet, that you will feel guilty for, and you rightfully should feel guilty for, and that you will feel ashamed for, and yet he loved you all the same before, and he will love you all the same again. Before the foundation of the world, he sent Jesus Christ to die for you. His love for you is secure. His love for you is sure. Direct your hearts to that. Repent and do it again. Strive and try to do everything you can to please the Lord. And therefore, he also points you at the steadfastness of Christ. Not just that Jesus Christ is always steadfast. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is immutable. He never changes. He is consistent and always sure and steady. But this also means for us to have the same kind of steadfastness, to hold fast to the very thing that Jesus Christ has done, knowing that his love would forever be over us, that we might be the same kind of persevering people that Jesus was, whose disciples left him, whose countrymen denied him, who suffered blasphemy, mockery, whippings, and beatings, and death, and yet did them all with perfect faith and perseverance because he knew the end of all of those things. We're sure and certain because of the will of God, his Father. And again, here we see the pressure on us to be consistent. If the word of God has come to us, let us see it go to others. If we are forgiven, we ought therefore to forgive. If we are Christ's, then let us act like him. Be consistent, friends. Be steadfast in all your life. And in all of this, we simply pray. Not just for ourselves, but together for all of us. Not just for me, but for all of us. Not just for you, but for all of us. So that collectively, together, the glory of Christ might be seen. That God's protection might be over all of us to keep us safe in a world that continually tries to pull us into faithlessness. Keeping us safe until we reach our final destination as we have already sung on the shore of our salvation. I'm praying that God's provision would be given to all of us. That he would lead us to maturity in Christ-likeness in all things. Friends, this is my prayer for us. I pray it is your prayer for me and your prayer for Crossway and your prayer for all of God's people. That God's name would be great among us. That God's provision would be seen among us. And that God's protection would be over us. Let us pray for these things even now. Father, help us to be a people who consistently desire your glory to be known and seen in the world. Give us all we need here, both physically and spiritually, to be the people you desire us to be. What you command will and protect us, that we might not be led and fall astray. Give us hope, confidence, and steadfastness in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.